Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Coming up next on this edition of New Way Conversations, it's part three of A Liberating Look at Gender, Releasing True Masculinity and True Femininity with Dr. Larry Crabb. You have a mm-hmm. chance to reveal the beauty of God in all that you do, and that's a vision that I want, want women to see, and I want them to face their core terror, that if I were really seen, that there's nothing desirable about me, and God says, no, you're believing a lie. We welcome you back to our series of New Way Conversations. I'm Jim Kress here with psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Larry Crabb. This series, we're talking about a liberating look at gender, releasing true masculinity and true femininity. That's our focus, and we appreciate you listening to this. Hope it's, it's been helpful, and you know, we know at New Way Ministries and the conversations that we have here that nothing is you end a half hour listening to a CD and say, I got it and everything, but it cons- it causes you to, to contemplate, to ponder some of the things that Larry's talking about in this series. So that's kind of a little caveat as we begin today. And uh, we talked last time about womanhood, two guys sitting here talking about womanhood, doing our best. Um, one of the issues is going to come up is, do we give, in essence, just insight? And this kind of ties into what I said a moment ago, and people say, I can get the insights of what you're saying, versus a word, again, you use a lot in New Way Ministries, and that is catching a vision or holding up a vision. You know, one of the mistakes that I think a lot of us make, men and women alike, is they come to see a counselor and they say, I have no desire for my husband sexually, whatever. Can you can you explain that to me? Give me the insight into why I have no sexual desire mm-hmm. or why I'm just so angry all the time or why I'm so depressed all the time. When I see my husband and I, I get mad. Uh, show me why that is. And, and then the counselor will go off on a rabbit trail in my mind and spend all the time on developing an insight. Well, it's because when your mother treated you this way and your uncle molested you and, and the consequences of all the sexual abuse and the ignoring of your mother and she was kind of shrewish in some ways and told you to be scared of men because they just want to exploit you. And and so we get insight into, into, into what is going on. And Jim, a lot of women and men who have all these struggles have spent years in counseling, gotten tons of insight, and haven't been changed. Yes. And what I want to suggest is that vision has more power to release the soul mm-hmm. than insight has power to change the soul. And that's why the, the whole theme as we're talking about manhood and womanhood, masculine and femininity, the, the real issue in my mind is not to explain why you're such a mess, mm-hmm. but to give you a vision, to give me a vision of what God has called me to as a man, what God has called women to as, as, as women to be truly feminine. And when that vision becomes alive in the soul, then you sit back and go, wow. It's kind of like looking at the Grand Canyon and saying God can make that level of beauty? Man, I want to sit here and look at it forever. Wait a minute. You've put the beauty of the Grand Canyon in me? There's something gorgeous about me, something wonderful about me as a man, about me as a woman. And when you see the vision, then I think it cuts through the hardness. It cuts through the confusion. And there's a release of an energy. There's a release of the Holy Spirit within that says, I'm going after that because that's my destiny. And that's why what, what I've been thinking about is as we wrap up our discussion of femininity, hardly wrapping it up, there's a whole lot more I don't understand. And if I had 20 hours, I'd just get more confused, I suppose. But as we think about what it means to be truly feminine, I believe there's, there are a lot of illustrations of true femininity in, in the Bible. 
Um, but the one that I want to end our discussion of femininity on right now is the example of Sarah. Mm-hmm. Peter, a passage we've referred to already, starts talking to women, and he says, your, your, your beauty is so deep, and it's an unfading beauty, and your beauty is not external, and you violate your beauty when you're contentious and you're trying to control everything, and when you're vexing, when you're trying to get people to change, when they don't change, you give them a hard time and try to control your husband, control your kids, control everybody. You, you, you lose the expression of your beauty. But there's something really deep in you that's wonderful. And, and most women hearing this are going to say, yeah, right. And again, as I said last time, I hope they eventually go, yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. But what is the beauty? And then Peter says something that is the most puzzling thing in the whole epistle in my mind. He says, women, be like Sarah. And my response is, be like Sarah. <laughs> She told her husband, look, it's been a bunch of years and we're supposed to have a kid by now. We've been having sex every night trying to have a kid and it hadn't happened. Why don't you go to Hagar? She's young and maybe she's fertile. Go have a kid by her. That was Sarah's idea. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of his wife and went out and did something that culturally wasn't all that foreign back in that day. Mm -hmm. But it certainly was a violation of God's intention. And and, And then Peter says, well, be like her. And I'm saying, well, why should, do I want my wife to be like Sarah? And Peter says, oh, yeah. And I'm going, what do you mean, Peter? And then Peter says, oh, I'm talking about the incident when Sarah called her husband master. Now, right away, women's hackles yeah, go up. So and a lot of triggers going on with that one. And a whole lot of guys saying, good, finally, I might get a woman who's going to be submissive to me. This isn't the whole point at all. The only instance where we're told that Sarah called her husband master, and let me just think about this with you just briefly to get a a vision of womanhood. I think we have a great vision of womanhood here. God came to Abraham, said, you're going to have a kid as an old man. Hadn't happened for a while. He comes back to Abraham and he says, and that kid's going to come through Sarah. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old, way past the age of childbearing. There's some indication in the text that they hadn't had sex for a long time. Because when Sarah overhears this conversation, her response is to laugh sarcastically. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, right. Um, you think that there is something within me that could give birth? There's something deeply feminine in my body that could yield to my husband? Am I going to again have this pleasure? And the word there has to do with intercourse. We're going to have sex again with my master, the one time she calls him master. And I'm going to give birth. It's just, it can't happen. That's ridiculous. And remember, God says, uh, Sarah, you laughed. He says, oh, I didn't laugh. And God says, well, yeah, I heard you because God hears everything. So Sarah was a little bit ashamed at that point, I trust. And then the story goes on about Sodom and Gomorrah. And a couple chapters later in Genesis 21, we're told that Abraham and Sarah got together and Sarah became pregnant. And then she laughed again. And the name Isaac means he laughs. And what she was saying was, I'm laughing at the beauty within me that I never knew was there. And when other women hear that this 90-year-old lady, a withered-up old lady, has actually been the, 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 the tool, I don't like the word tool, but the opportunity for God to bring about his plan, yeah. that was something wonderful within me, and now I've given birth to Isaac, and this is part of God's wonderful plan. This is unbelievable. I'm so excited, and she's laughing for joy. Now think what actually happened here. Hmm. How many women are saying, you know, if I became a woman Open, the word woman means open in Genesis. If I became open and believed that I could receive other people into the deepest part of my being and they would see something of the beauty of God 
and God's beautiful purposes would be enhanced through not my defensiveness, not my control, not my not my contentious and vexing spirit, but I really was willing to yield the deepest part of me. Yeah, it's not there. Well, that was Sarah. But what we know is that Abraham and Sarah, after perhaps not being physically involved with intercourse for maybe some time, probably years, Abraham came to Sarah. And Sarah was open to Abraham's movement Mm. because Abraham was moving according to the promises of God. Abraham was being a man in the richest sense of the word and saying, I see no possibility apart from God. But because I believe him, I remember what he said, and we're going to see in a little while that manhood means one who remembers and moves. Abraham moved toward Sarah, and Sarah received him into herself, in this case literally, physically, sexually, they had sex. And as a result, the beauty that God had kept alive in Sarah's being by a miracle resulted in Isaac being born. The vision there is of a woman saying, you know, I don't feel beautiful. I'm so terrified that if I really gave myself to my husband, to my children, to other people, that they would discover that there's nothing to me. Hmm. The core terror of a woman, I believe, is undesirability. If I were deeply seen, nobody would want me. And so I've got to hide myself because there's nothing in me that's beautiful. And God says, I know you believe that because you're fallen and because you've been shaped to believe that by a horrible culture. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is that if you open yourself up to the truth of who I am, then something beautiful will be discovered. You're going to discover you're a beautiful lady. In the core of your being, there's something to you. And then a guy with eyes to see is going to say, now that's femininity. Man, do I feel masculine in the presence of this woman, whether as a husband sexually aroused or as a brother in Christ is drawn to the beauty of God by the beauty that I see in you, or whether a son or daughter who sees mom and says there's a beauty to that lady, and I as a man feel more alive as a son to this particular woman. As a daughter, I feel like I want to become more like her. You have a mm-hmm. chance to reveal the beauty of God in all that you do. And that's a vision that I want, want women to see. And I want them to face their core terror that if I were really seen, that there's nothing desirable about me. And God says, no, you're believing a lie. So two thoughts as you're saying that to, to kind of make sure I'm on the same page and I'm understanding and there are audiences understanding this. There is a sense then that uh, a woman has at a core, a core terror, um, if I may put it this way, a sense of a deep fear of being known and a deep fear of not being known, or that she will say, you know, she'll say, I'm, I'm really afraid that someone will know me, and if they really come to know me, I'm not very attractive. I'm not beautiful, inside and out, especially inside. And she has a fear that somehow inside at the same time, I mean, she has her own fear. She's saying, I don't think I'm really a woman, or I yeah. don't think I'm a beautiful, I have no beauty inside. Yeah. Please don't see me. Because if you saw me, you'd find nothing but ugliness. Okay. On the other hand, please see me. I would love to have somebody see me and believe there is beauty. Yeah. And I would love to nourish that latter desire. Please see me because I'm willing to be open to being seen. I'm willing to share with you, husband. I'm willing to share with you, sister in Christ, what is really happening in me, not in a contentious and a vexing way but I'm willing to share what is in me and to give myself to you, believing it will be desirable. And that's going to be a hard thing for women to do. And as you say that, and we're going to segue into men here in literally just a second, but do you join me as a fellow man, uh, the masculine part we're going to talk about, as many other guys I've talked with have said, we at times get labeled 
that all we're after is to lust after women's bodies. You know, that's what we, we know. Guys do it. They're checking out hot women, whatever they call it. But there are many of us, and I certainly testify, that when a woman has warmth and opened up the depths of her femininity, that can be, it's not something we lust after, but boy, how beautiful and how much we think, oh, I want that. That's soul lust. Yeah. That's soul arousal. And I know it's reached almost cliche status, but I believe it, and it sounds silly at first. There's no man who's ever had an affair whose dominant motivation was physical lust. Yeah. Now, I'm not being silly here. No. A lot of guys just have physical lust and want to go to the motel room with a pretty girl and have sex. And I understand that that's a physical lust. But the core of their soul is screaming for something so much more. Because after they've had sex with a pretty girl and had a great time in bed, they leave that motel room. They're emptier than ever because they didn't get what they were really after. What they're really after is experiencing the beauty of womanhood which goes so far beneath the sexual experience. And that's why God designed marriage. His whole thought is, I want you to experience the beauty of womanhood, and then I want you to celebrate that in the physical union. Because sex inside a marriage is a wonderful thing. Have a great time. Go, go have great sex. But because you're, you're having great sex, not simply because you lust after her body, yeah. but you're celebrating her soul. And you really see the beauty within her. The woman who feels beautiful because of her husband's movement toward her is the woman who, not in every case, but generally is going to want to give her husband sexual pleasure because she's going to know that I'm not being violated, I'm not being used, I'm not a thing, I'm not an object, I'm a person that you're celebrating. Mm -hmm. And now we can come together in the physical union. But one of the things that women do, and this is the last comment on womanhood, one of the things that women do in their terror their terror of, if you really knew me, if I let you enter me, you'd see me as ugly. The most common thing that a woman does is to take over. And that's a contentious, a vexing thing. And we got off on a wrong foot, both men and women in Genesis. Yeah, and back to Genesis 3, the fall. What Gen- happened? Yeah. How are we impacted by that? Well, you know, after they sinned, and we can talk about the nature of the sin and all the rest of it, but but what strikes me is most, most germane to our topic right now is that after the sin, when God visited Adam and Eve and pronounced certain judgments on them for their sinfulness, mm-hmm. he said to, to Eve, after the fall, in consequence of their sin, in consequence of her sin, he said to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. And I read that, and my first thought is, that's a consequence of sin. That was a good thing. Yeah. That's a judgment. My wife desires me. Uh, sexually, yeah, in good ways, but I think a whole lot more. She desires to be with me. She likes my company. And a man says, let the fall continue. Let the man yeah. expand it. Yeah. You know, develop this fall. It's wonderful. Yeah. Don't reverse it. Well, we've got to understand it differently because that's not what the text says. The word for desire, your desire shall be for your husband, is an unusual word in the Hebrew. It occurs three times in the Old Testament, one in Song of Solomon, and the most provocative time it occurs is in Genesis 4, when God says to Cain, who was jealous over God's approval of Adam's, of Abel's offering and not mm-hmm. Cain's. Yeah. And then he says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and it desires, same word, to have mastery over you. Sin wants to take over. It wants to control. I believe the judgment on Eve is, now that your husband is a fallen person who has failed in his masculinity, you now believe correctly that openness, femininity, is a chance to be violated. Hmm. And so you're going to close up the opening. You're going to take over and you're going to say, you're never going to get to know me. And this is not just, and obviously, not just about the opening of having sexual intercourse. No, The no, opening no. into whatever portal goes into her soul, it's like, that's done. It's the opening of the soul that's been closed. Yeah. You will not know me. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to live to protect myself. And when you hurt me, 
as you will now that you're a fallen man, my number one priority is to be hurt less. If that requires screaming at you, if that requires us getting a job and ignoring you, and there's a wrong woman getting a job, but if she's doing it to avoid her husband, that's a problem. I'm going to find a thousand different ways to protect myself. Maybe I'll just be real pretty and frothy and silly and stupid on the outside. Maybe I'll just be a very substantial, brilliant woman who can win every argument with you. But one thing that'll never happen is you will never know the depths of my terror. Because once you know the depths of my terror, I can be hurt. So I'm in control. I will not trust God with my soul's well-being. I will close up the opening to my soul. The woman who does that in a thousand different ways will never release the femininity in her soul. As we, well, that's so powerful. And as we segue into the issue of the fellows here, you and I and everyone else, every other guy listening today, um, there is a thought I, I, I could ask at any point along the way, but I want to go ahead and get it in now, so make sure we get it in. Whatever we're going to discover from you that we guys do and how messed up we are and what the effects of the fall are, et cetera, et cetera, there is often this teaching that you'll hear that someone will say, and therefore women are hurting and they've closed up their soul and all that. And if a guy would ever finally get his stuff together uh, and become the man God's caused him to be or called him to be and, and caused him to be, then finally the woman naturally, I mean, it's just naturally autopilot, that hole in the soul will guarantee it will begin to open in a woman. That sets up a guy for guilt, trip, and pressure. Hmm. It isn't true. Now, at a level of probability, you know, there's a I, cause and effect almost a little at some small level, maybe. Well, cause and effect strikes me as a little bit too strong, but at least influence. Yeah, I've been married for 38 years, almost 39. Well, 38 and plus a few months, and um, I failed my wife in a hundred ways, but I've loved her here and there yeah. pretty well. Yeah. And as a result, after 38 years of marriage, my wife is more open to me as a woman. I experience her femininity more now today than I did when we were newly married. Why? Well, I think one of the influences has been that I'm committed to my wife. I'm battling for her soul. I move toward her as a man, not all the time, but sometimes. And part of the reason my wife is a very feminine, wonderful woman is partly because God has used my influence to open her up. Now, if my wife is not open, does that mean it's entirely my fault? Well, I think every husband should say, if my wife is not glowing, if my wife is not happy in her womanhood, if my wife is not celebrating her femininity, then I think it's time for me to ask, where have I been weak? Mm-hmm. Where have I not moved toward her? But not in the sense of it's all on my shoulders. Right. I think a man can be very, very godly and very, very strong because I believe in the individual freedom of people. And a man can be a wonderful husband and a wife could take off and be a, an adulteress. She could divorce. She could be clothed. She could not give her husband the time of day and be married to a really pretty good guy. Well, God's perfect, and Jesus was perfect, and plenty of people have rejected him, right? And even those who walked right with him, the perfect man, and it didn't do enough inside them. So This is a little extraneous, but it fits your point that you're making. How many parents feel terribly guilty because their kids are a mess and say, if only I had done it right, right. then the kids would be great? And my response to that is always, well, God's a perfect Old Testament parent. How does his kids turn out? Yeah, right from the start. Right from the start. So okay. God, there's no failure in God, and and I don't want to put guilt trips on, well, come on, husband, if you turn into the man that I'm going to describe now, your wife will be a, a thing of beauty. Because the reason you want to become a man is not to transform your wife. Mm-hmm. The reason you want, become a, you want to become a man in the deepest sense of the word is you want to reveal the character of God through your masculinity to a watching world, including your wife and children if you're married, including anybody if you're a single, whoever. You want to reveal the character of God for his pleasure. 
Now, how will God use that? His problem, not yours. Yeah. Will he use it to get your wife to enjoy her femininity? In many cases, he will. Praise God. Celebrate it. When he doesn't, you'll hurt. But you'll still have the joy of knowing that you've reached your destiny and you're fulfilling your purpose on earth to reflect God as a man. Same thing with women. Your husband's a pornographer. Your husband's cold. Your husband's not involved. He's a workaholic. Well, it's all your fault, lady. You need to be open as a woman, then he'll change. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if your husband is not a very good husband, it might be time to look in the mirror and say, how am I failing him as a wife? Hmm. But as you become the kind of wife that God has called you to be, I think the odds are your husband will respond. I think that's pretty common. Guaranteed? Absolutely not. So there's no pressure on you or guilt. Your purpose in becoming a man is not to change your wife or anybody else. Your purpose in becoming feminine as a woman is not to change your husband or anybody else. It's to please God and fulfill your destiny. How God uses that in your marriage, with your kids, with your friendships, that will be your joy or sadness, but it's not your responsibility. Thus the the God-centered versus the man or woman-centered philosophy. And the, the series we're doing, A Liberating Look at Gender, Releasing True Masculinity, True Femininity. Let's talk about true masculinity for a moment to set this up, especially the generation that you came from and even the generation I came from. There are a lot of voices out there saying, this is what a man is. I can think of the Marlboro Man. Mm. Uh, saw him on Larry King recently, and he had, <laughs> he'd had throat cancer, and he's anti-smoking, anti-smoking, so oh, that didn't funny. work. You hear, you know, and I heard a lot of this, you know, the real man, well, it was John Wayne, or the real man was someone who was tender, who could love, who could be gentle, and you, there's a cacophony of voices saying, this is what the authentic man is. In the end, there's so many voices, I don't think we have a clue. And the voices of today are probably a little different than John Wayne and the Marlboro oh, Man. Now yeah. it's the Johnny Depps and the Brad Pitts and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. or the athletes, the Andre Agassi or whoever, uh, sexual athletes mm-hmm. um, who are just a very appealing and GQ style and women are just slobbering all over them. That's manhood. A lot of say Christian some. women are. Let's make sure we're clear about that. Are saying they're, they're saying, man, I went to that movie and to be honest, wow, boy. Mm, turn me on. Yeah, yeah. Or in the more spiritual circles, the real man is the pastor whose church has gone from 50 to 5,000. The spiritual, I, I can, a woman would say, there's something that just excites me. I mean, I feel it in my soul about a deeply spiritual man. Why is our Christian culture so driven by celebrityism? The people that write the books, the people that pastor big churches, the people that lead huge conferences, they're the ones that everybody wants to get their autograph. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that people want to come just to be in their presence yeah. because that's real manhood. Boy, I'll tell you, I hang around in those circles a little bit, and I know what I'm like off stage, and I know what a whole lot of the Christian celebrities are like off stage. And let me tell you, there's not a whole lot of men out there. There are some. I don't want to paint a too broad a picture here. Yeah. But that's not manhood. So what is manhood is the real question. And I think we can start um, with where we started with womanhood. What's the word male mean in Genesis? Uh, in the image of God created he man, male and female created he them. So manhood, the general picture of humanhood, uh, human beings are divided into two very distinct kinds of people, kinds of beings that are deeply masculine and deeply feminine. We saw that deeply feminine has to do with the root word that's used of being open. We developed that at some length. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to start thinking about and finish it up in our last session that the word male in Genesis chapter 1 is a word that has a surprising meaning, just as the word female does. The word for male in Genesis 1 is the same word that was used for a cabinet position in the ancient Near Eastern kingdoms. In our culture today, we have a president of the United States, and he has cabinet members. Right. Well, back in those days, they had cabinet members as well, different terminology. But one cabinet member 
was identified by the same word that God chose to call male. And it means the cabinet member in that situation was somebody whose job was to remember what the king was to do Hmm. and to tell the king, this is what you must do. You have an appointment today at 10 o'clock with the, the envoy from Babylon or whatever it might be. And the word literally means one who remembers or the remembering one. So what on earth does that have to do with true masculinity? Yeah, because every woman knows men never remember anything. <laughs> Birthdays, <right>? anniversaries. <laughs> Just saying that. And so I think we have to ask the question, what, what, what does it mean? If that's our first biblical tip-off, yep. then it bears sitting back and pondering a little bit and saying, what does it mean to be the remembering one? And then I think we can start asking a few questions coming out of that. And maybe we can look at this very briefly, but um, this is pretty key in my mind. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't make them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that. Adam was created first. And a couple things happened in God's relationship with Adam before he created Eve. Now, did God just not think of it until a couple of weeks later? Or is there something here to learn that God created Eve sometime after Adam was created? And what strikes me as very significant here is when God gave instructions about what tree not to eat from, and the focus was not on the prohibition, the focus was on the provision. Adam, you can enjoy everything. Look around. I have created beauty all over the place. Go have a blast. You can eat from everything in this garden. You can enjoy every animal. No one's going to bite you. No lions are going to come over and tear you apart. You can enjoy everything I've made. It's gorgeous beyond description. <clears throat> but there's one thing. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that has been subject to many interpretations. Let me just give you a quick one on it. The idea of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a strange Hebrew construction. Not that strange. But what it means is, um, good and evil are the two opposite polarities, two opposite extremes. And God is saying, what I don't want you to do is to claim knowledge that you can figure out as your basis for handling life. I want you to live in fellowship with me. Hmm. I want you to follow my spirit. I don't want when a problem comes up for you to sit down and say, let me get all the knowledge I can. Let me see what's good here. Let me see what's bad here. And I'll figure it out. My kid's a mess. My kid's on drugs. I will now figure it all out. I will handle it because I'm in charge and I'm self-sufficient. God's saying, oh, no, you're not self-sufficient. I want you to depend on me. I want you to walk in fellowship with me. I want you to have the courage to move into your life with the wisdom that I provide. Do not eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And he told Adam all that before Eve was created. And then Eve was created a little bit later. And then what happened? Serpent comes to Eve, and he says, um, how about it? Is God holding out on you? Hmm. And the serpent gets Eve a um, little bit deceived there, according to Paul and Timothy. And Eve responds by saying, well, God did tell us that we you know, couldn't eat from that tree. We couldn't even touch it, which God hadn't said. And we couldn't eat from that tree that's in the middle of the garden. Well, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And God did say that if we eat it, on the day we eat of it, we're going to die. Well, God didn't say that. God said, you will surely die. So all of a sudden, Eve is now misinterpreting what God said. Well, where had she heard what God had said? She heard what God had said from Adam. Yeah, that's right. Because obviously, Adam heard this instruction from God. Then Eve was created. And I presume after they met each other and had their moments of incredible joy and union getting to know each other, as they're walking around the garden, I presume what happened was Adam was saying, isn't this unbelievable? 
God's walking with us every night. We're having fellowship with him. Look at all this. But one thing, Eve, I got to tell you, God said we must not eat from that particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We must not eat from it. Because if we do eat from it, the day that we eat, we're going to surely die. So Eve, that is God's word. And I remember it. And I move into your life with that truth that I remember. That's a man who remembers the truth of God and moves toward another with that truth foremost in his mind. That's the essence of manhood. And is that movement, then we're hearing both the, the word you've, you've used for, for a long time, as you taught us, is Zakar, the one who remembers, that there is a remembering, but there is movement. And is that movement then moving into the opening of her femininity? Then? That's the beauty of it. So there is metaphor there. That's the beauty of yeah. it. In Exodus is a chapter two, when God looked down the Israelites, had been in Egypt for how many years? 400 plus years. And it says God remembered his covenant. Mm-hmm. The word is mailed. M-A-L, not M-A-I. Right. God right. mailed his covenant. He remembered his covenant, and what did he do? He moved hmm. toward his wife, the children of Israel. Mm-hmm. He moved toward his bride, looking for the opening of, I will move toward you and deliver you from Egypt, and you in feminine form will be open to my movement, and you will embrace my movement, and we're going to have the children of joy. We're going to have the children of beauty in this universe. And the children of Israel didn't quite see it that way. So there wasn't the beauty that God had in mind there. So yeah, the idea of manhood is to move, to move into the other world. But that's not what happens. And um, let me just say this quickly. When the serpent talked to Eve, there's some debate on this. I'm personally persuaded that the Hebrew construction at least indicates, I think fairly clearly, that the whole time the serpent was talking to Eve and Eve was getting confused and deceived, Adam was right there the whole time. He didn't say a word. And the failure of manhood began right at that point, the silence of Adam. He didn't speak into the situation. Why not? And with this last thought, we'll close this particular, this particular session. Had he ever had experience with what he experienced right then. Had the devil ever approached his wife? Had God ever given directions to Adam? We have no record of it. Where God did not say, as far as we know, Adam, a snake's going to come up, talk to your wife. And when this serpent starts deceiving Eve, here's what I want you to do. Here's the formula. Here's the code. Here's the procedure. Write it down, Adam, so you have a script. You know exactly what to do. God never did that. God expected Adam to move as a man, to remember what God had said to him, and then to be creative and to say, on the basis of what I remember, here's how I, in my freedom as a man, with strength and courage, move into the confusion where I don't quite know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. I'm not clear, but I know I'm called to speak for God into the situation. And Adam didn't do it. Jim, I recall when our older son kept, and with this permission I tell this, you know Kepra well, and you know the story that he rebelled pretty significantly when he was about 15 and mm-hmm. about four or five years. He was, um, he was pretty far away from God. Broke my heart. And I made Adam's mistake. I didn't know what to do. I can counsel others. How do I handle my own son? Do I ground him? Do I punish him? Do I show grace to him? Do I talk to him? Do I not talk to him? How do I talk to him? What do I do? I didn't know. I'm a whole lot better at writing books than, than fathering my kid. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself backing away into my sphere of competence. And I actually communicated to my wife that his rebellion was her fault. 
Hmm. At one point, Rachel actually said to me in tears, I feel like you're blaming me for giving birth to this boy that is breaking your heart. And that really got to me, and I saw my failure as a man. I wasn't remembering that God has called me to be the dad and to move into my son's life, not knowing what to do, but having the courage to move into chaos. That's the essence of manhood. Adam was silent when Eve was deceived. He didn't say a word. And that's your problem. That's my problem. That's every man's problem. And as a result, I don't feel like a man when I don't move into my world. So then I find uh, compensatory ways to feel like a man. It could be pornography. could be making money. could be becoming famous. Something that makes me feel alive as a guy. Mm -hmm. When God says it's all false. You want to be a man? Remember your calling to move into your world when you don't know what to do. Don't retreat into only those areas where you're sure of yourself. Move into the areas where you're not sure of yourself. That's when you learn to depend on me based on what you know of, of who I am. Well, we do thank you again for joining us on this edition of New Way Conversations. Our focus again today has been a liberating look at gender, releasing true masculinity and true femininity, part three in our series on gender. Our final installment will be the next program to which you will listen. Well, as we wrap up today, we point you again toward our website, newwayministries.org. That's newwayministries.org. A lot more in the way of resources, both audio, video, and in print. Be sure to check out the entire Larry Crabb Audio Library there. Again, that's at newwayministries.org. Remember, we are a nonprofit ministry, and would you pray about standing with us financially as we believe we are part of a revolution in relationships? Correspond with us. Let us know that you're praying for us and that, again, you'll make a donation to help underwrite what we're doing here. Just go to the website, newwayministries.org. There you also can find out about Larry Crabb's speaking engagements, all of the upcoming ministry opportunities that we'll be part of here, newwayministries.org. Most of all, thank you for listening. For Dr. Larry Crabb, I'm Jim Kress. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.